Welcome to Grace Point Church Podcast. We proclaim Christ crucified and uphold him as the only hope for the fallen world. Hi everyone and welcome back to our GG reading. This is Christ's Call to Discipleship by James Montgomery Boyce. Today we are looking at chapter 6 and the title for this is The Path of Humility. The Path of Humility. So James begins by quoting from Matthew 20, 25 to 28, and I read, You know that the rulers of Gentiles lord over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servants, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Matthew twenty twenty-five to 28. Here's how he begins. Now, years ago, a woman who attended one of my Bible classes gave me a book that she honestly wanted me to read. It was entitled Beyond Humiliation. I did not read it. I was conscious of my own lack of humility and thought that reading a book going beyond humility was the last thing I needed. I would be the height of pride to think of going beyond something I had not even begun to attain. By contrast, I think of Brother Lawrence, whose corrected conversations and letters are entitled The Practice of the Presence of God. Lawrence lived in the 17th century. He was born Nicolas Hamann in French Lorraine, served as a soldier, and then was converted through seeing a tree in winter, stripped off of its leaves, and reflecting on the fact that within a short time, its leaves would be renewed through the love and power of God. His conversion led him to enter monastery of the barefooted Camerites at Paris in 1666. In the monastery, Lawrence, as he was then called, was assigned to the kitchen where he had charge of utensils. Now at first he abhorred the work, but he set himself to walk in God's presence so that he could worship God and serve others in the most humble circumstances. In time, Brother Lawrence came to worship God more in the kitchen than in the cathedral, praying, Lord of all pots and pans and things, make me a saint by getting meals and washing up the plates. He died at 80 years of age, full of love and honored by all who knew him. His meditations on the Christian life, recorded largely by others, are a classic. Begin with a subtitle here, A Difficult School, A Difficult School. Now, how did we know of humility, even after many years of Christian life? Yet, how essential humility is to true discipleship? In previous chapters, I pointed out that discipleship means following Jesus Christ, and that is essential for all who would be saved by him. I referred to Christ's obedience in leaving heaven in order to become like us and die for our salvation. But I need to note that it was not only the path of obedience that Jesus' incarnation marked out. He modeled humiliation as well. Philippians 2.8, which is the chief statement in this area, says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself 
and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Obedience and humility are both virtues in which believers must imitate Christ. The need of obedience is mentioned in verse 12. Humility in verse 13. It is for the sake of learning humility that this was written. But it is a difficult school, which is the point I am making. Obedience is hard too, though there are times when we believe we can almost handle it. Humility takes us back to the need to die to self and take up our cross and is the hardest thing of all. It was hard even for the disciples who had been taught by Christ and had continued in his school for three years. In the last chapter, I looked at the Lord's parable of Christian service, his washing of his disciples' feet. I pointed out areas in which we must serve other people. But what I did not talk about in that chapter was the reason the Lord was particularly led to this demonstration. The problem was that the disciples had been fighting over who should be greatest in the kingdom, which they supposed Jesus would soon bring. They were thinking of pomp and circumstance, not the cross. They assumed that Jesus was going to take over the throne of his father David, and they were joking to see who would stand closest to that throne, exercise the greatest influence, and receive the greatest honor in that day. This had happened on several occasions. After the transfiguration, when the disciples who had remained behind had been approached by the father of a boy with an evil spirit and had been unable to drive out the spirit out, a group fell to arguing. We are not told this, but the three who had been with Jesus on the mountain probably thought themselves superior to the nine who had, been, who had remained behind and had failed in the matter of exorcism. They had been arguing about who was greatest, as we see in Mark 9.34. Jesus instructed them, saying, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all, as we see in verse 35. Then Jesus used an illustration. He drew a little child into the midst and said, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. As you see in that uh, verse 37. We also see the same from Matthew 18, 1-5 and Luke 9, 46-48. Now we would think that the disciples would get the point, particularly since it had been reinforced for them visually. But in the very next chapters of Matthew and Mark, each of whom tells the story, we find the disciples actually turning children aside. They have been telling their mothers that Jesus is too important, too busy. But really, they are thinking that they are too busy. Besides, any time spent by Jesus on the children would not be spent on them. I mean, Jesus was indignant with the disciples. He said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as this. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God is like a ritual child, uh, and he will never, anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a ritual child will never enter it. See that in Mark 10, 14 to 15, Matthew 19, 14, and Luke 18, 16. To 17. Now, this was an intensification of his earlier teaching. Earlier, he had spoken of relative possessions 
within his kingdom. The first would be the last and the last would be the first. Now he was teaching that without humility, it was not possible even to enter the kingdom. And that incident came before the triumphal entry. On this occasion, the mother of James and John came asking if her sons could sit on the right and the left side of Jesus when he came in his kingdom. The other disciples heard about it and got angry with James and John. Jesus said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and the high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See that in Matthew 20, 25-28, Russell Mark 10, 42-45. Now we would think perhaps that now, after that episode and that rapture, the disciples would have learned their lesson and that their desire for the chief priests uh, would be forgotten. But this was not so. Apparently, the conflict intensified and would continue even into the upper room. For if Luke is giving us a chronological account of this evening, we learn that even after the institution of the Lord's Supper, a dispute rose among them to which of them was considered to be the greatest. As we see in Luke 2, 22 verse 24. It was at this point, perhaps, that the Lord divested himself of his clothing and performed the foot washing. If we can learn from the disciples, we should learn that the desire to be foremost is so great in us that we can be maneuvering for prominence even as we come to the communion service. So when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he was not speaking only about service, though uh, that is the very uh, way in which uh, we studied John 13 in the last chapter. He was also speaking about humility. He was saying that humility is the prerequisite for service. It is only when we become like a little child, no, even more, a slave, that we can really follow Jesus and help others. Also, it is only when we become like little children that we can learn from Jesus, learning among other things what humility is and how it must function. Otherwise, we are like the disciples. We are so caught up with thoughts of our own importance that we do not even hear Christ speaking. We look at another subtitle here. Four burdens rolled away. Four burdens rolled away. Now, one of the greatest books on the Christian life that I have read is A.W. Tozer's The Pursuit of God. He deals with humility in this book and says that learning humility from Jesus delivers us from crushing burdens. The first one is the burden of pride. The burden of pride. Now, humility is the opposite of pride. So to the extent that we learn meekness in Christ's school, so far as we are delivered from the destructive weight of self-love, pride, and arrogance. The burden of pride is a heavy one. In his study, Toza asks us to consider how much trouble has come into our own lives because of our prideful reaction to someone who has given us offense. Here he quotes, As long as you set yourself up as a literal God to which you must be loyal, there will be those who will delight to offer affront to your idol. 
How then can you hope to have inward peace? The heart's fierce effort to protect itself from every slight, to shield its touchy honor from the bad opinion of a friend and enemy, will never let the mind to have rest. Continue this fight through the years and the burden will become intolerable. Yet the sons of the earth are carrying this burden continually, challenging every word spoken against them, clinging under every criticism, smarting under each fancied slight, tossing sleepless if another is preferred before them. We think of Moses who is praised in the Bible as a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth, as you see in Numbers 12.3. He is praised from, uh, for this spirit in a story in which he experienced the worst of personal attacks, not from a distant enemy, but from Miriam and Aaron, his sister and brother. Forty years before this time, when Moses had fled Egypt and lived in Midian, he had married Zipporah, the daughter of a priest named Reuel. Zipporah was of the same racial stock as the Israelites, and she had borne children to Moses. However, Zipporah had died by the time this later story takes place, and Moses was marrying another wife. His new wife was a Cushite, the name given to the inhabitants of ancient Ethiopia. And the point of the story lies in the fact that she was therefore of a different racial stock from the Jews. Probably she was black. We cannot be entirely sure of this, but it is likely since the Cushites were generally regarded as black and because of the particular details of the later punishment of Miriam who objected to the marriage. The text says Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses? They asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? As we see in verse 1 and 2. Now the Bible tells us that God heard the words of Miriam and Aaron. And at once he called them to stand before the tent of meeting. He said, quoting from Numbers 12, 6 to 8. When a prophet of the Lord is among you, I reveal himself to him, myself to him in visions. I speak to him in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I can speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? End of the quote from Numbers 12, 6 to 8. Now the story continues by saying that the anger of the Lord burned against them and that when the cloud lifted from the tent of meeting, there stood Miriam at leprous. You see in verse 10. It is this fact that makes me think Moses' new wife was black. By the form of Miriam's punishment, it was as though God was saying, You are brown. This girl is black. And you think white is better? All right, have more of it. So she became a leper. And God used the incident to teach that there was to be no racial prejudice in Israel. Now, at the end of the story, we find Moses praying for his sister, who was later healed. This is the chief point, namely, the gentle conduct of Moses throughout the attack. What was his deportment? Did he resent his sister's accusations? Did he retaliate? Did he fight back? He did none of these things because he was walking in the path of humility and was therefore delivered from the burden of pride that makes us want to defend 
our own rights. Moses was humble because he had been bowed down before God. Therefore, he was able to stand tall but humbly before men and women. The second one is the burden of pretense. The burden of pretense. The second uh, burden Toza writes about is the burden of pretense. This is pretending to be something we are not and hiding what we really are. The man who is moderately successful in business tries to look wildly successful. He is ashamed to be thought only a moderate achiever. A person of limited education pretends to be more highly educated than he or she uh, is and fears to meet a thoroughly educated man. Even if well educated, the person fears to meet one who is better educated or to be in a position where the unfavorable comparison shows. A cultured person fears to be those who are even more cultured. Toza says, let no one smile this off. These burdens are real, and little by little, they kill the victims of this unnatural way of life. We pretend because we fear to be known as we really are. We do not want another person to think of us as ill-informed, as gouch and sophisticated, or other such things. But the real problem is that we are sinners, and our real fear, although we do not often admit it even to ourselves, is that somewhere we find out that we are corrupt and that our hearts are desperately wicked, as the prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. But Jesus delivers us from pretense when we follow him. He does it by bringing us before himself, face to face with God, before whom all hearts are opened, all desires are known. If our basic problem is sin and the desire to hide it from others, then the cure is to have sin dealt with by Christ and know that we are accepted by God on the basis of Jesus' atoning work, regardless of what we are or have done. Another way of saying this is that the cure of our fear is knowing that we are known already, deeply and exhaustively by God himself, and that he has loved us and received us anyway. Humility begins by knowing that I am accepted by God. Therefore, since I can stand before God without the need to pretend, I can also stand before others. If I am accepted by God, I do not need to worry about what others may think of my performance. The third one is the burden of artificiality. The burden of artificiality. Now, artificiality is a problem closely linked to pretense, as Toza indicates, but it is a step beyond it. It is a step in the wrong direction. It involves a fear of relaxing and an enforced affectionate. It is what we mean when we say that a person always seems to be praying a role. It can be amusing at times, but it wears thin, and we come away feeling that we really do not know the person. I wish he or she would just relax and be himself, we says. Artificiality falls away at the cross of Christ. The cross is so real, so brutally authentic, that standing before it is like standing before a bright light that probes into every recess of our being. Before the cross, we have the experience of the children in the chronicles of Narnia, whenever they were with Aslan. Before him, any dishonored word, 
any self-serving statement tended to dry up, not so much because they feared he would punish them for deceit, but because evil simply could not stand before one who was both all-powerful and completely good. The one who is following Jesus, we have precisely this experience. If we walk with Christ, we will grow in humility. If you are not walking in humility, if pride and pretense and artificiality are not falling away in our lives, we are not living for Christ. If we are as proud as we were before our alleged conversion, then we are not His. The fourth one is the burden of self-struggle. The burden of self-struggle. Now, a fourth burden we are delivered from uh, if we walk in humility is struggle. Struggle somehow to make it or gain recognition in this world. You understand, I'm sure, that I'm not encouraging a lazy spirit or an indifferent attitude in serving Christ. In his service, there is always need for hard work, diligence, willingness to suffer, and great perseverance. But that is a different thing from that kind of struggle for self-advancement that follows from pride. The Apostle Paul said, Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ. As you see in Philippians 3, 13 to 14. Yet in the same letter he wrote, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances, as you see in Philippians 4, verse 11. Jeremiah Burroughs was a 17th century Puritan who reflected on the strange lack of contentment that he saw about him in the church. In response, he wrote, The rare jewel of Christian contentment. He explained a lack of contentment as failure to see ourselves as we truly are, which means that lack of contentment froze from pride. His cure was to be steeped in the teaching of Christ, knowing, one, that in ourselves we are nothing, two, that we deserve nothing, and three, that we can do nothing, four, that we are worse than nothing, since sins Sin pits us against the good. And five, that if we perish, it will be no loss. And six, that our chief wisdom consists in the denial of self and the taking up the cross in Christ's service. Boros wrote, and I quote, There was never any man or woman so contented as a self-denying man or woman. No one ever denied himself as much as Jesus Christ did. He gave his chicks to the smithers. He opened not his mouth. He was a lamb when he was led to the slaughter. He made no noise in the streets. He denied himself above all and was willing to empty himself. And so he was the most contented that ever in any way any was in the world. The nearer we come to learning to denying ourselves as Christ did, the more contented we shall be. End of quote. Now, Boros was right in exalting contentment as an important Christian virtue. So long as we are proud, we shall judge that our status and words in life are less than we deserve. And we will be constantly striving to grasp what we consider our due. We will be unhappy. If we bow before Christ, we will marvel at how greatly he has blessed us, whatever we have, and we will rest in that. 
Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength, as you see in Philippians 4, 12 to 13. And we look at our last subtitle here. This is Begin with God. Begin with God. So I say again, if we are to learn humility, which we must do if we are walking in the path marked out for us by Christ, then we must begin with God and see everything in relation to him rather than in relation to ourselves. That is, we must acknowledge and embrace the fact that this is a God-centered and not a man-centered universe. I return to the disciples. The point from which this chapter started out, in the crossing days of Christ's other life, as he was attempting to prepare them for his departure and instruct them in what they would need to know to function as his disciples before after he was gone. They were arguing about who should be the greatest. They were thinking of themselves rather than about him. He was about to make that sacrifice upon which the meaning of all reality centers. Their preferred cross was to be the focal point of history. But the disciples, they were not thinking of that. They were thinking about Christ's earthly kingdom and they were jockeying for the most prominent places in it. They were doing everything I have described. They were prideful. They were pretending to be what they were not. They were guarding their ground and struggling to emerge either as Christ's right hand or his left. They were trapped by these drives so much that they missed what Christ was saying and almost missed the greatest event of all. Yet they did not miss it in the end because Christ played for them and he sent his Holy Spirit to change them and awaken them to the truth. It is beautiful to see the disciples were all guilty of this fighting spirit according to the gospel accounts. But among the many guilty, James and John stand out as most guilty because of their compliance in the efforts of their mother to get them the first places. Yet, think what happened. At one time, Jesus called them sons of thunder, no doubt because of their arrogant, boisterous attitudes, as you see in Mark 3:17. On another occasion, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to destroy a village of the Samaritans that did not receive them, as you see in Luke 9, 54. But they changed when they finally got their minds off themselves and onto Jesus. We are not told much about James, but he must have changed. We never hear of his struggling for prominence after the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord, and he eventually died for Jesus. He was executed by King Herod, as you see in Acts 12, 1-2. John lived to be a venerable old man, known as the Apostle of Love. He was living uh, humility when he said, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers, as you see in 1 John 3.16. If Jesus can turn a son of thunder into an apostle of love, he can surely conquer pride in us and teach us humility. He needs to if we are truly to be his disciples. That's the end of that chapter. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grace Point Church Podcast. 
For more information and for past episodes, please check our website, Grace Point Church, 